All right. Hello. Hello. Good morning. How are we? <clears throat> Won't you come on in? I was working outside all week, so my voice is uh, filled with pollen, uh, which is a lot of fun. So I said, kids, don't smoke or else you'll talk like this when you're older. Um, but come on in. Find yourself a seat. Uh, today, we are continuing our series in uh, applied theology, uh, which is practical theology, and we are going to be talking this morning about an applied theology, a practical theology of worship. So here I am. If you say worship three times, I appear. And so we'll be talking about applied theology of worship. Worship is a subject at the center of the Christian life, and yet I don't think a single subject is more neglected in Protestant evangelical churches than worship. I think the gospel is actually a close second. It's a term that you hear all the time, but it's rarely explained, just like worship. And so we all talk about it. We all have opinions about worship. We all have expectations in worship. But how often have we actually really got down to the difficult work of defining worship, much less defining how we're going to worship in our everyday lives or what that even looks like? And so today, I'm going to attempt to offer a definition of worship but before I do that, I'm going to actually ask you all to do that yourselves. If you see on your handout, if you don't have a handout, they're on that little uh, music stand there in the back of the room. But on that handout, you'll see a bunch of lines, a big blank underneath the question, what is worship? And so I'm going to ask you to do the work for me so I don't have to explain anything today. I want you to write your answer to that question, what is worship? If you need a pen, there's pens underneath the seats uh, in front of you. So grab a pen and try to answer that question. What is worship? Give us a definition of worship. I'll give you a couple of minutes where I won't be talking, distracting you. So go ahead. Now, I won't make you read them in front of everybody, so don't get nervous. <laughs> Susie, come stand up and read your definition. I'm not going to do that. Fear not. People that are coming in are like, what is happening? So quiet. Are we in trouble? <laughs> Taking a test, that's right. <laughs> just uh just a yeah, just about another minute. What is worship? All right, y'all are looking at me like, come on, man. So we'll stop there. Hopefully you've written something down. Uh, I'm actually going to just start out by praying for our time, and then we'll spend our morning walking through my definition, which, to be fair, I had a little more time uh, than y'all did to, to think about and write down, but we'll walk through that definition. But let's begin uh, in prayer. 
Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for an opportunity to, to gather together and to talk about uh, the worship of you, uh, something that you have commanded us to do. I pray, Lord, that uh, we would indeed worship you now in our time, and uh, I pray that you would be glorified, and I pray that we would exist to glorify you in everything we do. We cannot do this apart from your spirit, and so we pray for your grace. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Okay, now, y'all can, thanks for following the instructions, y'all can turn the pages, and uh, which reveals my definition of worship uh, up there at the top, which goes like this. I think that worship is our proper response to God for all he is and all he does. This response is a continual response of adoration and action manifested both in the lives of individual believers and in the corporate life of the local church. So that sounds a little too technical. I can explain a couple of things. You notice I've color-coded the definition. So you'll see this definition is a two-parter. It's my attempt to cover two perspectives regarding worship. The first part, worship is our proper response to God for all he is and all he does. That covers a theoretical definition of worship. I'm answering, what's the, what, is, what is worship theoretically? And that theoretical side of worship is something we definitely need to cover, but I don't want to just be satisfied with theory. I don't want to stay up in the clouds. That's what people are doing when they say, your whole life is worship. Everything's worship. I actually agree with that, and that's true, and that's sort of what that definition's saying there, but I think it's far too theoretical to actually meet your practical day-to-day life. And so I want to get all the way down to the practical, which is what the second half of that definition covers. What is worship practically? Worship is a continual response of adoration and action manifested both in the lives of individual believers and in the corporate life of the local church. You see how that's a little bit more focused, a little bit more down to earth. And so my plan for today is I'm just going to walk through this definition and hopefully walk away with a deeper understanding of what worship really is, both theoretically and practically. Okay? Sound good? All right. So let's begin with a theoretical. What is worship Theoretically, once again, worship is our proper response to God for all he is and all he does. And so notice in that definition that worship is a response. Notice that word response, which means that worship is not something that begins with us. It begins with someone else. Obviously, worship begins with God. A lot of this talk this morning is going to be about what we do when it comes to worship, but it would be a shame for us to breeze past the reality that we worship God only as a result of God, only as a result of the mercy of God. That worship's not something we bring to the table, similarly to how the the moon doesn't bring any light to the table. How does the moon have anything to shine? Derives everything from the sun. It simply responds to the light of the sun, and likewise in our worship, We're completely and totally dependent on God, his mercy. He has to give us new hearts. He has to awaken us to the beauty of his love and the kingdom. He gives us the light, and by his spirit, he makes us respond to that light. So that's what our response to God looks like. Matt Redman captured this in a song he released in 2004 called Breathing the Breath. It's from one of my favorite worship albums of all time. He says, we have nothing to give that didn't first come from your hands. We have nothing to offer you which you did not provide. Every good, perfect gift comes from your kind and gracious heart. And all we do is give back to you what always has been yours. Lord, we're breathing the breath that you gave us to breathe to worship you, to worship you. 
So worship is a response to God that we ourselves cannot inspire, but is rather completely dependent on the mercy and action of God. But not only this, worship is the proper response. Notice that word proper. Worship is the proper response. And I owe this word proper to D.A. Carson, who wrote a really helpful book titled Worship by the Book. I highly recommend that to all of you. And this uh, book has greatly influenced my understanding of worship. And I'm, I'm saying, I'm making this call out to D.A. Carson, first off, so you can maybe read that book, but second, so I don't get in trouble for plagiarizing, because I totally lifted this word, proper, from that book, as well as a few other things. His, his teaching is sort of woven throughout mine. So whatever I have to say to not get sued, D.A. Carson is the one who came up with this. I owe this word to D.A. Carson because he emphasizes it throughout his book, and he emphasizes that worship is not only a response to God, but a proper response, because you can respond to God in a bunch of ways. You can respond to God with cursing him, or indifference, or idolatry, but we wouldn't call those types of responses worship, would we? No, because those are improper responses, but rather worship's the proper response to God. Or to say it another way, Any response to God, which is proper, is worship. Any response to God, which is proper, is worship. And on the other hand, any response to God that is improper is not worship, it's idolatry. It's idolatry. Any response to God which is improper is idolatry. And those are really your two options in life. In every moment, in every thought, in every motivation, you're either responding properly or you're not. You're either worshiping God or you're committing idolatry. Because idolatry is breathing that breath that God has given you to breathe for the purpose of worshiping him, but instead taking that breath and sending it somewhere else, using it for something other than what God intended. Whereas worship is breathing this breath that God has given you to breathe in order to glorify him, to live and do and think as he desires. And so here's... My point, here's what I want us to recognize this morning. Worship is bigger than singing on Sunday mornings. I think we all knew that, that worship is far more than singing songs about Jesus. You may have even noticed in my definition of worship, you don't see singing at all. I don't even mention it. Not because singing isn't worship, but because singing is just one of countless numbers of ways that we are called to worship God. Because anytime we obey God's commands, submit to the Lordship of Christ, when we love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, when our thoughts and decisions and our actions are proper responses to God, we are worshiping. And yes, that can be done when you're singing in here with us on Sunday morning. That can also be done when you go to sleep on Sunday night. So worship is far more encompassing than we realize Recognize any time we respond to God properly, we are worshiping. And as Christians, that is our purpose in life, to worship God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 5 through 6, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many so-called lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So we were made for God, and through Jesus, we exist for God. And therefore, the proper way for us to exist is in accordance with how God wants us to exist, presenting our entire life to God to be used by him, to live as he desires to glorify him. That's our worship. And that's the exact thing that Paul says to the Romans in Romans 12 
uh, verses 1 through 2. This is the clearest definition, biblical definition of worship. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what God wants of your life, of your existence, what is good, what is acceptable and perfect, a.k.a. what is proper. So we are worshiping when we are responding properly to God, and there's not one aspect of your life that is outside the bounds of worship opportunities. Therefore, our worship is all-encompassing. It's a living sacrifice, not just when we sing on Sundays. So let's return to our definition. Worship is our proper response to God. Oh, and uh, one more quick thing. For all he does, for all he is and all he does. So God is worthy of worship before he does anything for you. We love to worship God for saving us, for sending his son to die on a cross for us, for all the mighty works he's done in our lives, but that's not what makes God worthy of worship. God is worthy of worship simply for who he is. Don't forget that the angels worship God day and night, but not because of any mercy that he has shown them. They've not sinned against him. They worship him because of the glory do his name, as the Psalms will say, because of who he is, which means that we should also worship him for who he is, not simply because of his actions towards us, but because of who he is. Psalm 150, verses 1 through 2, make a special point of this. It says, praise the Lord, praise Yahweh, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens, praise him for his mighty deeds, all that he does, praise him according to his excellent greatness, all that he is. So, returning to our definition, worship is our proper response to God for all he is and all he does. It's breathing the breath that God gave us to breathe and using that breath for him, presenting our entire lives as a living sacrifice to him because he is God and because he cares for us. So that takes care of more of the theoretical side of worship. Everything you do, you're commanded to do for God. That is your worship. Your whole life is worship. Yes, amen. That's the theoretical side. Now let's start to dive into the practical. What does that actually look like in our lives? This response is a continual response of adoration and action manifested both in the lives of individual believers and in the corporate life of the local church. So we'll begin with adoration and action. Based on what we covered, what we just covered, if worship is a response to God and God is continually existing and continually showing mercy to us, then our worshipful response ought also to be continual. You see that? Like so long as the sun is shining, the moon is responding. And so, so long as God is God, who he is and what he does, we are worshiping continually. And this response, this continual response is of adoration and action. This is another point emphasized by D.A. Carson, don't sue me, because it's a point emphasized in your Bibles as well. You cannot worship God in adoration only. And you cannot worship God in action only. It's like love and marriage. You can't have one without the beautiful. <laughs> Look at Matthew 10, 37 through 38. Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not 
worthy of me. Now, what's that talking about? Adoration. He wants your love. He wants you to love him more than father or mother, son or daughter. Adore me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What's he talking about there? Action. You can die on a cross, but if you don't love Jesus, what's the point of that? And you can really love Jesus. You can love Jesus more than your family. But if you're unwilling to follow him, then isn't your love invalidated? Again, in John 14, 15 through 17, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Meaning if you adore me, you will act like it. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So just what a gift of grace. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Oh, and by the way, I'll give you my spirit to guarantee if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But sometimes worship is talked about as if it's simply a declaration of God's awesomeness. We tend to think of worship primarily as praising God, pronouncing our love for God. And yes, that is certainly worship, but so is your action. So is the way that you live, how you treat your spouse, how you pay your employees, how you receive a paycheck from your employer, what you post on Facebook, what podcasts you choose to listen to, how you go about eating and drinking, everything. Worship is all encompassing, and it's a continual response of both adoration of God, yes, knowing him, treasuring his love for you in your heart, knowing him rightly, holding fast to sound doctrine, but also of action, keeping God's word, keeping Christ's commandments, not just some of those commands, keeping all of God's word, not just the words that make good ammunition to fire at the liberals, but keeping all of God's word, like the command in Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, that's the church, that's us, what are we to do? Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Is your adoration of God accompanied with this sort of action? Do you love Jesus? You place him first in your life to the point of actually putting on humility as well, following him in obedience, being sure to keep all of Christ's commands. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Is that how you see yourself in your life? Is that your job title everywhere you go? Not a leader, I'm a servant. That was the job title Christ put on being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so I'm just trying to show how quickly we say, yeah, my whole life is yours, Jesus. I would die for Jesus. But how difficult it is to show an ounce of patience or compassion for people we think have wronged us or we don't politically understand. They're ruining our culture. True worship includes 
loving Jesus for the example he gave us, yes and amen, and then following him in obedience. Adoration and action. You can't have one without the other. Amos 5, 23 through 24 says, Take away from me the noise of your songs, this is God speaking, to the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Worship is a continual, ever-flowing stream of adoration and action. Let's continue. Worship is our proper response to God for all he is and all he does. And this response is a continual response of adoration and action. So now you see how we're descending to the practical, manifested both in the lives of individual believers and in the corporate life of the local church. Let's start with our personal lives. Let's talk about the lives of individual believers. Worship is manifested in the lives of individual believers because we as individuals are commanded to worship God and to offer our entire lives as living sacrifices as our spiritual worship, as we just saw. But what does that look like practically? Now, again, to repeat something I mentioned earlier, any proper response to God is worship. I really want you all to walk away understanding that which means that worship, responding to God properly, is something you can grow in in every single aspect and moment of your life. There's nothing that you think or do that falls outside the realm of thinking or doing as God would have you, as God desires in a way that is acceptable and good and perfect to God. So if someone came to you and said, you know, hey, my best friend or whatever, I want to worship God more in my personal life. What should I do? Think to yourself, what would you tell them? I actually think right now, like, well, yeah, what would I tell them? I say, hey, I have this lack of worship in my life. I want more worship. So what should I do in a week? The next week, what should I do? I think if we're honest, most of us would say they should add a bunch of activities to their life. Maybe they should go worship to or listen to a really good worship album, you know, from some church. Or maybe they should read their Bible more or have more quiet times. They should pray more. Maybe they should fast one day a week. I think those are all great things, and those are all certainly worshipful activities. But this is sort of the crux of what I'm trying to tell us today. Notice how these things that we typically think is worshipful isolate a person from the vast majority of their daily life. Notice how these activities involve drawing away from normal spaces and the normal aspects of daily life. And I think we all need to spend time drawing away to pray, to read, and to study. Don't hear me like dogging on that. Jesus did that. But that was not all or even the majority of Jesus' ministry, praying on hilltops. We need to stop limiting our understanding of worship to just those spaces. Because worship is presenting our entire life to God as a living sacrifice, not just our quiet times. Which means that Jesus gave us a perfect example of worship, not only when he was praying, but also when he did things like eat bread, or walked from town to town, or went to sleep, or washed his own feet, or bought bread at the market, all of the more ordinary things that Jesus did. Everything Jesus did was perfectly worshipful, because he knew nothing of a secular sacred divide where these things over here are worshipful and these things over here are just ordinary. The vast majority of Jesus' life was filled with the mundane things that you and I experience every day. And yet everything he did was perfectly 
worshipful, which means, and pay attention to what I'm saying, worship is more a matter of why you're doing something rather than what you're doing. Worship is more a matter of why you're doing something rather than what you're doing. Because, and I think we all know this, you can read your Bible in a way that is worshipful or one that is just to bring glory to yourself. Just idolatry. You just want to be the guy that can say, oh, I I finished through my Bible reading plan and I'm awesome. And so I have more spirituality than everybody else. You could do that. I'm not saying anyone who reads a Bible plan does that. But we we can sing. I could every Sunday sing up here to worship God or to just get y'all to like me and get y'all to love the sound of my voice. It could be worship or idolatry. What matters is why I'm doing it, not necessarily what I'm doing. You can file your taxes to the glory of God. I hope you all did that. Or just to make yourself feel like a good person, like a good upstanding citizen that's better than people that aren't. You can do a good job at whatever it is you do at work to glorify God, to worship him, or to take comfort in your own reputation. People noticing your hard work. Watch this. You can even exhale a deep breath to the glory of God. Or, same action, you can passively, aggressively tell someone you're mad at them. What matters is not so often what you're doing, but rather why you're doing it. And if you want your life to be more worshipful, yes, I think reading your Bible and prayer and gathering with the saints are all extremely important and vital parts of the life of a Christian. But I would also argue that redeeming the more ordinary aspects of your life and redeeming the more mundane things that you do, seeing those things as moments of worship to the glory of God is just as important. So what does that look like practically? Let me give you an example. Most of us, when we wake up in the morning, I assume we get out of bed, and then maybe you go to the bathroom and get ready. Maybe you check your phone. You might eat some breakfast, make coffee. So let's just stop there. Which of those things is worshipful? They should all be. They should all be. You should get out of bed as an act of worship. It almost sounds silly to say. Get out of bed as a proper respond to God at a decent time so that you can actually take care of the responsibilities God has placed in your life for you to take care of. When you go to the bathroom from getting out of the bed, again, this is a silly example. I just want you to show everything can be worshipful. Go to the bathroom, just go to the bathroom. Don't go to the bathroom to hide from your responsibilities. I had a buddy who every time his newborn son needed a diaper changed, he would go to the bathroom So his wife would have to change the diaper. Don't do that. Now that's idolatry. That's not worship. Yeah, worship. Go go to the bathroom and don't avoid your responsibilities. If you check your phone, check it as God would have you. Why are you checking your phone? Is it a mindless habit? Is it a pill you pop just to sort of silence everything that is around you? Are you trying to tune out something that God has actually put before you that morning? Sorry, I can't change that diaper. I I gotta check something real quick. Check whatever you need to check. You actually need to check it. Otherwise, your life's happening. You have lungs with breath filled to worship God, to to go change that diaper, to start making coffee, to start making breakfast, care for your family, care for yourself or for your house as sacrificial acts of worship. If you make coffee, is coffee an opportunity to worship God? Or is it a daily sacrifice to an insatiable idol? 
Do you need coffee or do you enjoy coffee? Who's in control in the relationship? So I could, I could do that through your whole day. Go throughout your whole day. If you, if you drive to work, do you glorify God in the way you drive? Do you present your driving habits as a living sacrifice to God as your spiritual worship? Or do you like to go fast like me? Do you maintain the car that you're driving, this gift that God has given you to steward? Do you actually take care of it as a sacrificial act of worship? If you work from home, do you actually work from home as your company intends, the hours that they're paying you to work, or are you just logging into the Zoom call? Is that the proper way to respond to God? If you're in an argument with someone in your day, with a friend, a coworker, your spouse, most likely a toddler, Are you worshiping God as you argue? Engaging in the debate with compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Or most importantly and most likely, admitting that you're wrong. Asking for forgiveness when you aren't arguing as God would have you. Worship God as you argue and as you apologize. This worship does not involve being sinless. It means a proper response to God, one of repentance in the midst of your sin. If you're doing laundry, which is dreadful, a dreadful, never-ending activity. I hate laundry. Do you realize that you're worshiping God by simply washing those clothes? I'm not saying you have to be thinking about God in all these moments in order to worship him. Simply, humbly serving your family and caring for the clothes that God is giving you, you are worshiping God. Especially families with lots of kids. I go over to your house, there's like eight of y'all. I'm like, no way. So much laundry. I could never handle that. But those things can feel so ordinary. But remember, so is the majority of Jesus' worship. Ordinary, daily, not worth mentioning by the authors of the gospel. Mundane, but faithful, obedient, responding to the Father properly, laying down every part of his life as an act of worship. I could literally go on with every single aspect of your life. Here's my point. Do you see your life as filled to the brim with opportunities to worship? Or do you think that you can only worship him on Sunday mornings and in quiet times? Only when you're explicitly mentioning Jesus or talking about church and there's like Shane and Shane playing quietly in the background. There's no part of your life that God has compartmentalized or placed outside the bounds, bounds of worship. Everything that isn't inherently evil can and should be done to the glory of God. There's this lyric from a guy named Aaron Keyes. He wrote a song we sing here called Sovereign Over Us. We've sung that recently. Uh, This is from a different song called Invitation Song. He sings, open up our eyes to see you in the ordinary. We don't want to miss you anymore. Open every eye to see every day. Everything is burning with the glory of the Lord. He's saying that we so often miss how many opportunities there are in the ordinary to worship God. Our lives are filled with continual opportunities to respond properly to God in adoration and action. So, like Paul encourages us in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You don't have to add a bunch of activities to your life in order to practically worship God more. Yes, God commands you to meditate on his word and to pray. I want us to have a rich life of prayer and study here at Parkway. This whole semester has been about teaching you how to carve out spaces in your life to devote to these sort of disciplines for the sake of worshiping God more. So go listen to those TEC classes, do those things, but also 
Worship God in the stuff you're already doing. Recognize that the ordinary worship of daily life is no more and no less than when you're singing on Sunday morning. So, just so we're clear, once more, I'm not saying as you like fold laundry, you don't have to be thinking, as I fold this laundry, I worship you. You know, that's not what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm saying that when you're folding laundry, you're serving your family. You're taking the form, remember that word, of a servant. And that is your worship. As you go to the bathroom, and you're in there to go to the bathroom, rather than avoid changing a diaper, I guess when you get older, it could be the same thing. But you're going to the bathroom, getting that done, and responding as God would have you. Getting back to your responsibilities. That is your worship. Worship is far more mundane than we tend to think of it. But that's a good thing, because God demands that every breath, even the mundane ones, be spent worshiping him. Let's read our definition again as we head into our final section. Worship is our proper response to God for all he is and all he does. This response is a continual response of adoration and action manifested both in the lives of individual believers and in the corporate life of the local church. Worship is manifested in the corporate life of the local church. Church. So just by the way, as I'm like talking and like almost like yelling, it's just because my voice is low. Don't think I'm like shouting at you. Listen to me. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to talk loud enough to where y'all can actually hear. Okay. I'm not mad at y'all. I love you guys. We're doing great. Okay. So the corporate, the corporate life of the local church, this probably isn't news to you, but worship is not only something we're called to do as individuals, but also we're specifically called to do as a redeemed people together. Just like as individuals where our worship is a response of adoration and action, the same applies to the local church. The worship of a local church ought to include loving our sovereign God, adoration, and also acting like it as one unified body. If you've ever heard people talk about a church having both gospel doctrine and gospel culture, that's what they're referring to. We know God, treasure him, love him, praise him rightly. That's gospel doctrine. And we serve people. We are hospitable. We're gracious. We're not gossips. We're, instead, we're encouragers. We're not arrogant and proud. We're humble. We're meek. We're missional, evangelistic. That is gospel culture. We exhibit this culture when we as a church support and pray for other churches around us. When we're kingdom-minded, not just parkway-minded by linking arms with other churches in the area to actually minister to the area we live in here in Collin County. That's something you'll see us doing a lot more of in the coming months. We exhibit a gospel culture when we meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in this body. When there's people that need their car's engine repaired, we come together to support our brother or sister. Or one of our own experiences, a loss. We worship by coming alongside them, praying for them, encouraging them, providing for their needs, setting up a meal train, or just talking to them. Gospel doctrine leading to gospel culture. You can't have one without the other. Well, you can, or you'll just be another church with a huge falling and an implosion, like we've seen in the past decade. But I want to talk about our worship when we gather specifically on Sunday mornings. 
Like individuals, local churches worship by being obedient to the things, to do the things that God has commanded that we do when we gather. We're, we're called to respond to God in a way that he would have us as we gather as a corporate body. And this is a nod to something you may have heard of called the regulative principle of worship. The re- How many of you have actually heard the regulative principle of worship? You've heard that phrase? Not many, because only nerds argue about it. Okay. <laughs> But I'm going to explain it anyways. Next time someone tries to argue with it, argue with you about it, you can just be like, nope, not important, whatever. But it is somewhat important. The regulative principle is the idea that God regulates our worship. Here's what I mean. God has given us in his word certain activities that he desires that his people would do, specifically when we gather together. Basically, if all scriptures breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, that sounds familiar, then we should consult the scriptures if we're wondering how to do the good work of worship when we gather together. That is the argument at the, at the core of the regulative principle of worship. Now, I have a lot of beef, a lot of issues with the regulative principle, or at least how many pastors and theologians wield it. Okay, so let me explain. The regulative principle is something that was first described by John Calvin. He's a good buddy. John Calvin was writing against the Catholic Church, who told its members that in order to truly worship God, you had to you know, pray Hail Mary, you had to do this, you had to give this sort of tithe, you had to do all these different things. All these things that members of the Catholic Church were told they had to do in order to rightly worship God. And Calvin said, uh, that's not true. You don't have to do that. You're not sinning by not doing those things. God has told us what he desires in worship. Things like preaching the word, singing hymns and spiritual songs, prayer, taking the Lord's Supper. God has given us in his word descriptions of worship, and his descriptions seem to be different from the Pope's descriptions. Therefore, the regulative principle, according to John Calvin, would say that to look outside of the scriptures for a definition of worship and tell people their worship is insufficient unless they follow these traditions of men, Calvin said, whoa, that's, no, that's wicked. You can't do that. That enslaves people to a standard of worship never commanded by God. So instead, look to the scriptures for a standard of corporate worship and do not add or take away from what God has said. I love that. No beef there. And that's the regulative principle I fully support without qualification. I love that. However, most churches and denominations, maybe y'all even uh, came from some of those, most pastors who claim to support the regulative principle take this principle way too far and actually end up doing the very thing that Calvin was originally concerned with, making a new standard of worship that everyone must submit to that they're getting outside of the scriptures. For example, for example, some will go as far as to say, we believe in the, new, in the regulative principle, and when we read our New Test- Testament, we don't see any instruments in worship. Therefore, to use instruments in worship is sinful. You can't use instruments. Regulative principle, you know. Or others will say, we believe in the regulative principle, so if you don't take communion every Sunday, you're not truly worshiping God. Or even others They'll go as far as to say, if you ever use a quote from a movie as a sermon illustration, well, what does the Bible say to preach the word? It doesn't say preach movies. So no movie quotes and sermons. 
Okay, some will go this far as to restrict their services and the content of their services to these are the three, four, five, six, or 12 things you must do inside the context of the, of the corporate gathering lest you sin. You must order your services in such and such a way, even though the scriptures haven't explicitly commanded those ways, which is, again, what birthed the regulative principle in the first place. So instead, here at Parkway, in keeping with the true intent the heart of the regulative principle, we go to the scriptures to understand what God has commanded us to do when we gather in order to worship him properly. And what is God's command? Here it is. That when we gather, we do whatever is most profitable for edifying the body. Whatever is most edifying. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Now notice Paul's not saying every time you gather, you must do X, Y, Z. You must have a hymn. You must have a lesson. You must speak in a tongue. Now, of course, none of the regulative principle guys ever speak in tongues. They just kind of go, yeah, just not that one. Not that regulation. But rather, whenever you gather, let whatever you do build up the church. Build each other up in the faith. All throughout the New Testament, we see admonish one another, as Colossians 3 says, to exhort one another, as the the author of Hebrews says, to edify the body. Therefore, here at Parkway, when we ask the question, what should our corporate worship services look like? We believe the most proper, what is most proper in corporate worship is that is whatever is most edifying, that which builds up the body. Because if we're going to ask you to participate in a worship service, we're not going to ask you to participate in worship activities that the Bible doesn't universally prescribe as actually being helpful for building up the body. So singing together, yeah, the scriptures seem to put that forward as a particularly edifying practice. But watching a ribbon dance, is that worship? Yes, certainly can be. Is it edifying? Absolutely, to some But with the limited time we have in our gathering, is that what's most edifying for the church corporate? No, we don't think so. If people have ribbon dances at their churches, you cannot say that it's a sin. You cannot, because the Bible wouldn't condemn that. However, we seek to pursue what is most edifying for everyone sitting in here on Sunday mornings. Matt Merker, uh, who's a guy... I love sometimes we quote these guys. You're like, who's that? I don't know. Here's what he says. Matt Merker is a pastor uh, of a church that we uh, would respect. Anyways, he wrote a nice little book called Corporate Worship, How the Church Gathers as God's People. He offers his view of what is most edifying in worship. And we at Parkway, we would agree with his conclusion. The practices that seem to find this intersect of worshipful and edifying are reading the word, preaching the word, Praying the word, seeing the word, seeing meaning like sacraments, baptism, Lord's Supper, and singing the word. When a church gathers, the proper way for us to respond to God is by reading the word, preaching the word, praying the word, seeing the word, and singing the word. Now, because of our time constraints, and I've already spent enough time talking about the relative principle, wasted all my time on that worthless thing, (coughs) I'm just going to talk about that last one singing the word, right? Also, because maybe some of y'all came in to this class expecting this is what we spend all of our time talking about, singing, and so I got to give the people what they want, 
okay? Specifically, I want to talk about our meaning, the leadership of Parkway, is our efforts towards edification as we sing together on Sunday mornings, what we do and why we do these things. And then I want to talk about your practical efforts as the congregation. In other words, how to participate in our singing and the edifying implications of your participation. That sounds like a riddle. Uh, It's not meant to be. Let's start with what we try to do in order to encourage the edifying practice of corporate singing. First, we at Parkway, if you haven't noticed, we emphasize singing, not only because God's word emphasizes singing, but also because songs have a way of communicating a ton of truth and just a few simple lines. You need to recognize just how efficient music is at capturing and communicating big truths in ways that we can easily memorize and understand and share. So for example, as a case study, we'll do this. We sing a song, me and Kelsey, with our kids, uh, and it's sort of an adaptation of a song by a dude named Jason Upton called God Who Sees. And it goes like this. I'm going to try to sing it, but this is what my voice is like. It's going to be recorded forever. Perfect. It goes like this. There's a God who sees. There's a God who sees. There's a God who sees right where you are. His love is strong and won't let go. He holds his people in his heart. And even when you're far from home, there's a God who sees right where you are. That's it. I'm about to cry because I love my kids. So (laughs) I think of them. I just can't help but cry. That song communicates, short and sweet, repetitive, communicates God's omnipresence, his benevolence, his love for his people. So many huge truths about God that translates in various seasons. So for my kids, when they're sleeping in a new place on vacation and they're kind of scared, oh, it's a new room, I'm far from home. Or when we go sleep, or they, we have them sleep at a friend's house, so we don't have to leave their house at like 6.30. It's lame being a parent, you know? So we put them down in like our friend's closets. That's kind of like kids are like, what, do you love me, you know? So we sing, there's a God who sees you. He sees you. What we communicate is that This song reminds them they're safe, that God's good. And just like he's good at home, he's good when they're far from home. And it comforts them. But watch this. This same song can communicate the same big truths and even bigger situations for adults. Just bigger than my kids being nervous about a new place that they're sleeping. Imagine you lost your job. Listen to the words of this song. Again, I'm not going to sing it again. I'll just read it. There's a God who sees. There's a God who sees. There's a God who sees right where you are. His love is strong and won't let go. He holds his people in his heart. And even when you're far from home, and this is great, because you can think of your eternal home, where there are no more tears, no more losing jobs, no more wanting and never getting, only joy, only having all of Christ forever, eternally, even when you're far from home on this side of eternity, there's a God who sees right where you are. Imagine you've been maybe mistreated or you've been misunderstood or you feel like you've been abused. You've been 
uh, left by a friend group. Guess what? There's a God who sees. There's a God who sees. There's a God who sees right where you are. His love is strong and won't let go. He holds his people in his heart. And even when you're far from home, there's a God who sees right where you are. Songs have a way of capturing and communicating big truths in ways we can easily memorize and share and apply to all sorts of situations. Therefore, we find singing to be particularly powerful and an edifying practice. Who cries more, me or Jared? Goodness gracious. Yeah. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Yeah. Uh, You don't know. Maybe he cries in public. I cry in private, alone. Anyways. Uh, (laughs) So, here at Parkway, we emphasize singing. Notice I'm not saying listening, you know, listening to me sing the songs. I'm saying singing. We want our people to sing together. Here are things we do to try to encourage that. We repeat songs often, you may have noticed. We sing a limited number of songs so, so that they'll actually be familiar to you. You will have heard them before, and you'll actually know them. Since, I've came, uh, since I came to Parkway, uh, we have sung in the regular rotation 33 songs total. I came in 2016, and that includes Christmas songs, 33 songs. That's not like some big thing of pride. What I'm trying to say is we repeat songs often so that you will know them. That allows you to learn the song, to learn the chorus, more than the chorus, actually, to anticipate how the melody goes and to hopefully even memorize it, carry it with you outside of these walls. I'm very happy to know on Sunday morning that even today as we sing, you know, you are good and all you do is good. We sing to God that he is good and all he does is good. I want you to know that in here. I'd rather you know it out there. I'd rather you take that truth out there. And so if you want help getting better acquainted with our songs, we even made a Spotify playlist of all the songs that, that we've sung here ever. And if you want to find that, you just scroll to the bottom of our website. There's a little Spotify icon. Uh, click that, and I'll take you to our playlist. It's our entire songbook, per se. So you can actually listen to those at home, get to know them a little bit better. Also, we sing songs in a key that y'all can actually sing. Typically A flat or D flat or F. Those are keys most men and women can sing at the same time. Y'all can both sing the melody on the songs that we sing. Our songs are also simple in regard to melody. Once you're about two verses into one of our songs, you've got it pretty well figured out, right? Pretty easy to pick up from there. What's great is sometimes when I'm preaching, in the past we've had guys that we knew, that we trusted, that weren't a part of our congregation, weren't a part of Parkway. They would step in and lead worship for us, so I wasn't have to lead and preach on the same Sunday. And they would sometimes start to sing a verse differently than how we typically do it, and y'all would definitely correct them. Y'all were so much louder, and you'd be like, they'd be like, you are getting, you're like, nope, we sing it like this. <laughs> so loud. I love that, because y'all know the melody. The melodies are simple, predictable, easy, easily sung, and even better, easily memorized. And finally, when we try to encourage singing by giving you an opportunity to hear yourselves. I'm sure y'all noticed that. Our singing is meant to glorify, yes, but also, the scriptures say, to encourage, to admonish one another. So I love when Zane tells me, hey, man, it's really hard to mix the sound from the back because of how loud the people are. I can't hear, there's, between the back of the room and the stage, there's something really loud getting in the way of his mixing. 
I love that. I never want y'all to not be able to hear yourselves because it's not me that's worshiping while you guys listen. It's us that is worshiping. That's, that's what makes it corporate worship. It's important that our worship continue to actually be corporate. And so our hope is as we sing songs that are biblical and as we sing songs that cover a wide variety of applications and we sing songs that aim to sort of preach the sermon before we even open the book in the morning, before we even read the text, our desire, and all of that is edification, that you guys would be built up, that you would be edified as you sing the word. Now, this is where we'll end. What are the edifying implications of your singing? What are your efforts in singing? So our singing on Sunday is meant to praise God. That's the vertical component of our songs, but also remember the horizontal aspect of singing, meaning don't forget that we sing to worship God, but also to edify those around you. Don't forget the horizontal aspect of worship. So recognize that we, we need your worship. Your worship is meant to be poured out for the body, not just for your own encouragement, but for our encouragement. Again, it's corporate, not individual worship. We need your worship. We need your voice, even if it's a little bit off key. Your participation in corporate singing is a service to your brothers and sisters. Let me give an example. We all face trials and heartaches, right? If you haven't yet, well, don't worry, you will. When we're in the midst of a trial, singing involves this vertical perspective of surrender and trust of God. God, I'm singing to you in the midst of the valley, trusting that you will care for me, that you'll take care of me. But at the same time, you're telling everyone in this gathering, hey, as I go through this, God is still worthy of song, even though my life is falling apart. Sing with me, brothers. Sing with me, sisters. I want to know that I'm not the only one. I want to know that we're all trusting the same Father and that we truly are a community of faith and the deliverance that God promises. That singing surrounds your brothers and sisters in whatever season they're walking through. And it's inherently encouraging to sing together rather than alone. But then on the other side of that interaction, just imagine you look around while we worship, and I encourage you all to do that, and you see someone who you know is going through something much worse than you, something awful, like your car got broken into, but they lost everything. Yet they're singing. They're pouring out their heart in song through the pain, through the sorrow, through the disappointment. They're praising God for his goodness, his kindness. Does that not encourage you? Does that not admonish you? Does that not build up your faith? They're like, wow, she can sing in the midst of her circumstances. What am I? What's, what's my problem? Your singing is for the body. It admonishes the people gathering around you. So sing praise to God and edify those around you. Don't forget the horizontal view of gathered worship. I could spend like hours here, but y'all don't want to do that. <laughs> Instead, actually, I want to have time for questions. So I want to pray for us and uh, that we would, you know, grow in our worship of God and then we can answer some questions. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your grace. We need it. I pray that uh, we would continue, uh, we would glorify you uh, by your spirit, Lord, that you would grow us in our worship of you uh, and in the ordinary moments of our life and in our gathering as well, let all things that we do be to worship you. We cannot do this apart from you. 
So we need your spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.